0: Yep, so we've got the two red bars, that's good.
1: Okay, so about 8.30. Okay, so 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of When Movies Were Good, coming to you live from the resort studios, aka my flat, here in Melbourne, Australia. I'm with my usual special guest star, Matt. How are you today?
0: I'm doing good. I think description resort studios at this time of year becomes less and less accurate each time. (laughs) I got a lot of uh, mud on my pants the last time I played golf, so I know it's definitely not summer resort time.
1: No, it's not. But um, I think uh, the resort, when I talk about my flat, is more to do with the state of mind. It's a state of mind.
0: Mind you, you do have those nice square pebble stone pathways uh, that are designed for hurricane conditions. Uh, I, they are <laughs> like a lot of hotels I've seen in Bali. So, yeah. I mean, uh, architecture-wise, you're halfway there.
1: Yeah, that's right. And we did manage to survive the big gale storms uh, a few weeks ago here in Melbourne. But we're hoping everyone is doing well and really waiting and ready for – I reckon this is going to be one of our first Milan specials because knowing me – as time goes on, I'm going to want to do another one.
0: Yes, Rachel is blushing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> when it comes to Ray, definitely. I am, I am a fan of Ray Milans. I'm still really exploring his work, but I have to say that my initial interest um, comes via his stunning appearance, which I just find very attractive. Tall, you know, dashing appearance um, and ticks all the boxes for me.
0: Look, if you get uh, Grace Kelly to have a one-night stand with you, you can't be bad in the looks department. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right, and I don't blame her, to be honest. But that wasn't why you called. Moving right along, we are doing a Ray Milan double. Two of his most well-known films. Uh, the earliest one, 1945, The Lost Weekend. Well, that's the one he won the Academy Award for, so that would be... I guess, the apex of his work, I guess you could say, but he had such a long and varied career and there's other roles that he is very well known for, including playing Tony in Dial M for Murder, directed by the fantastic Alfred Hitchcock, 1954. So these aren't sort of ones off the beaten path. These are two of his most well-known films, but they're two of the good ones to start with when it comes to Raymoland. So, Matt, well, I'm just going to go through some brief, brief details about Ray Milland, a.k.a. No aka Alfred Reginald Jones. He was born on the 3rd of January, 1907, and he passed away in March 1986. So he was British American. He did originally hail from Wales, and he actually takes his stage name from I'm not sure where he got Ray from, but Milland is – due to the area of Wales that he lived in it was called the Milllands so that's where he got the name from and it you know it stuck it suited him i think sort of alfred jones would have been fine as well but we do know and love him as ray Morant, ray milland he had a very long and varied career and was pretty much acting right up until the mid 80s when he he did pass away
0: Well, we both saw that great uh, role he did in Mm Colombo where he was a a murderer.
1: Yeah, I had a great time. And he's, you know, he was in the 70s, he was in the 80s, he was in the 60s, he had his own TV show in the 50s. So he really ran, he was in musicals, he did this, he he was in The Army. He was really someone that lived life to the fullest. I'm sure he did have a few regrets. He did marry... um,
0: Cigarettes for one.
1: Yeah, exactly. And also uh, probably some extramarital relationships. And I do believe his son had some issues as well. So before Ray became an actor, so he did start his career in the UK And he was sort of poached and went over to Hollywood, began his career there, then went back to the UK for a little bit after he got married because his acting career wasn't working out in Hollywood and then managed to come back to Hollywood, was working some just regular jobs, got spotted for another film and then basically started and finished as an actor after that. But he was in the household cavalry of the British Army. And that so, sounds like
0: the most British thing you can do.
1: It is, Matt. Now we were just talking about this. We, really, we weren't not sure, but I believe the Household cav- Cavalry was sort of like a, I don't know if it was like an inland army or it was the, like they were the people who like defended the homeland. Or I'm sure there's. I'm not sure.
0: I know the actual cavalry regiments, the ones that were on horseback during the 19th century, doing the charters, Most of them probably by the 20s were being converted into like tank and air force units, uh, when you say household cavalry, I'm guessing like maybe it's an elite guard or like it, maybe it's the people that do those parades on the on the big street outside Buckingham Palace. I don't, I don't know. But then I would have thought that would have been like one of the more um, high-end jobs that they'd uh, go to the more experienced chaps, but I don't know.
1: No, you're actually right about that. I've just gone into a bit of information about them. So the household cavalry is part of the household division and is the Queen's official bodyguard. Okay. So that would have been, although the Household Cavalry Regiment is armored, it's not part of the Royal Armoured Corps. So that would be. So Ray began his life essentially after sort of finishing his schooling and stuff, doing that, and then got into acting. And of course, his first major role was in the Flying Scotsman, which I would love to see. Nineteen twenty-five.
0: I'd like which, to ride the train.
1: Yeah, which was a partial uh, film that was silent film, partial talkie, I believe, and. That's
0: what they used to use, that as like an advertising novelty, as a part talkie, you'd be going silent and then going to sound, kind of like how in Wizard of Oz they went from black and white to colour in the one film. Oh, right,
1: yeah. It seems like an interesting... Uh, interesting concept, but I guess back then that was sort of the bridge between silent and full talkies. So it was probably
0: cheaper to only do a part of
1: the time. Oh, yes, that uh, that too. It's just exactly the reason why some films in the 60s and stuff were still shot in black and white or some TV shows were because there was a, a cost element involved until everything switched over formally. So, and then he went over to Hollywood as Matt and I just love these stories of people <laughs> who go to Hollywood and started his career and worked with Dorothy L'Amour and D Anna Durbin and he was a little bit up and down at the start but once he sort of came back and and got into doing things like Beau Guest and The Major and the Minor which was one of Billy Wilder's first films, The Uninvited which I would love to see, Fritz Lang's Ministry of Fear, uh, The Thief which I have seen which I did enjoy and he worked with some of the all-time greats. so he worked with Grace Kelly, In more than one way, I guess, Lana Turner, Marlena Dietrich, Ginger Rogers, Jane Wyman, who I love, Loretta Young, and Veronica Lake. So he is technically a Welshman, technically British, uh, and I think he kind of billed himself as British-American, but he obviously had films where he was British and other films where he was American. So in the films that we are talking about, he was, well, he was American in the first film, The Lost Weekend, and then British in the second film. So let's get into The Lost Weekend. So this is the film that really sort of demonstrated Ray's acting chops, I guess you could say. Matt, what were your thoughts on this one?
0: Well, I loved it very much. I was actually nervous when I was uh, getting ready to see it because first I saw Die Island for Murder and on the DVD I had, they included a, like an extra documentary where they interviewed a few filmmakers and writers about the film. And one of them was Peter Bogdanovich, mm-hmm. who was an earlier, a, a later associate of Orson Wells, and he was quite dismissive of um, his role in The Lost Weekend, thinking it was too hand up, and that his superior role, role was in Dialing for Murder. And now now I feel like I'm starting to get into a very high-profile fight, because like, yes, I agree, his performance in in for Murder was extremely powerful, and I love it but i think the Lost weekend is an absolutely fantastic movie mm. and ray Millan was fantastic in it i mean granted it, it ends with a like with a dramatic speech which is probably mm-hmm. not so fashionable and like but the fact is, is that everything that he's doing hammed up and uh, and sort of um all his bullshit lines are because he's playing an alcoholic that's putting on bullshit for mm. his uh, brother and fiancé.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of read that the first cut of the film had a different musical score to it, so the audience didn't know how to take it, but once the... Um... There was a
0: lot of experimental features throughout the film, like where was special effects on the... Uh, to get into his drunk state of mind and his desperation for a, a drink.
1: Yeah, so just for the audience who obviously we would recommend you see this film, but essentially it's uh, about a an alcoholic writer called Don Burnham and he's supposed to be going on a weekend vacation with his brother Wick. That doesn't eventuate. Uh, it's one sort of disaster after the other, but essentially it's about this weekend he has going from one extreme to the other, recalling earlier events in his life, ending up in sort of like the drunk tank at the local hospital. And then towards the end of the film, with the help of Jane Wyman, who's playing his, um, you know, long-suffering girlfriend, Helen, uh, he sort of resolves to try and finally put this behind him in a way that he hasn't done so before. So it is really Ray Milan's film. Everyone in the film's really good. Uh, And the director who... Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder who, well, hello, needs no introduction. Like you said, Matt, there's a lot of experimentation in this film.
0: Well, yeah, I mean like the favourite part I have is when he's at the opera and he's having one of his early times when he had an unhealthy obsession with a drink and they're going through the drinking song from La Traviata.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, that's what it was, La Traviata. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Yes,
0: by Giuseppe Verdi. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Matt's a bit of an opera buff as well.
0: Yes, that's right. And um, they're going through that song and obviously he's in a drinking state of mind because they're singing about drinking and suddenly he pictures them as these overcoats, all of them, Mm -hmm. uh, with a bottle hidden inside. And I thought it was quite clever. It was almost getting into the territory of – like what we saw Hitchcock doing in Vertigo 20 years later Mm -hmm. with the uh, delusional state of Jimmy Stewart's mind in that film. So I thought it was quite clever how they were using those special effects and the alternative soundtrack uh, because Mm -hmm. they often had a lot of these sort of spooky, ghouly sounds. Yeah. So I think it was quite progressive in a way for showing sympathy of someone in that situation. And it is actually, believe it or not, a film noir And Mm -hmm. that's how the genre can get so confusing because although it's often about sort of pulp fiction crime stories, it isn't necessarily. It's about people going through these hardships of experience. Yes. With some certain characteristic special features like in the hospital, there is the where we see the wire fence shadow going over. Ray's face that is easily comparable to certain scenes like in strangers on a train, where others yes. are, where someone's hiding behind bars. Yes. It's, so it is a powerful genre that can cover a lot of angles, and it's not just a, a sort of bang-bang crime story.
1: Yeah, I mean it is sort of an emotional story as well and there are lots of people sort of, you know, someone who's an alcoholic, there are, you know, people that enable them, there are people that try and stop them, there are many different and everyone was very aware of his character Don and, you know, the the people he would come across in the bar, the bartenders. Uh, the other people in the apartment building where he lived. Everyone was very aware of this destructive habit that this man had. And even back then, they did refer to it as an illness, as a sickness. It's not quite, wasn't obviously as understood as it is now. But um, I thought the sort of sequence of him in the in the hospital um, where he thought, was it the mouse was eating the uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't actually, I probably should have looked that up, but is that actually a symptom of uh, alcohol dependency?
1: Yeah, it's called the DTs. So it's, yeah, basically you're having a lot of visions and um, things that you're seeing that are, are there but they're not type thing. And I have seen a few other films where the characters are suffering the DTs as well. And it's sort of like if you can kind of get through that and then start, you know coming off the alcohol you can get through it a bit but it's you've really drunk yourself into a state if you're at that point though yeah
0: yeah it's it's it is like you say an illness for some people like we talk about the because it it's like people who say oh I'm a a little OCD when they say they can't let go of uh, not cleaning the carpet on a Saturday morning Mm -hmm. but no OCD is a genuine mental illness or mm-hmm. or a, a genuine medical problem where you have panic attacks over a, such a random thing so it's it's disrespectful to use it as an excuse to just be stubborn
1: yeah that's right yeah it's You know, it's sort of um, an interesting film and I guess at the time it was considered a hard-hitting film too sort of but it did do quite well and it's definitely got its place in, you know, classic cinema history was sort of one of the first films that did try to explore the nature of, you know, you have to remember what the culture was in the 1940s. Anyone that was an alcoholic or they were either functioning or was hidden away by their family. So I guess to have a film with it such in the forefront was quite sort of groundbreaking at the time. But I think Ray did a fantastic job in the film, as did Billy Wilder as the director. Uh, and I really enjoyed Jane Wyman. I mean, obviously, I'm a, being a fan of '80s soaps. I'm a fan of Jane Wyman from Falcon Crest, but um, it just goes to show you because she was quite manly in her later years. She was very skinny and very sort of, at least in the role she was playing in that film. And it was nice to sort of see her in a more, you know not like not matronly role, but just in the more traditional, strong, headstrong sort of partner to a, a very des- man who's on, hell-bent on destruction, I guess. I
0: reckon there was a lot of deliberate symbolism in that leopard coat.
1: Yes, I think so. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's the thing is with The Lost Weekend, it's one of those films you could probably watch several times and get something new out of it every single time you watched it.
0: Well, another movie I'd like us to one day discuss is uh, – the country girl or uh, no the country girl
1: mm-hmm.
0: that was with a Bing Crosby and Grace Kelly and mm-hmm. that was made about 10 years after this one and it's one of the few non-musical roles Bing Crosby ever had and he did that superbly where he's playing a struggling alcoholic as well mm-hmm.
1: yeah that would yeah for sure I'm, I'm open to see that I'm always happy to see anything with Grace Kelly in it so just to sort of finish up on this, just a couple of little interesting tidbits. Um, Olivia de Havilland was originally considered to play Helen, uh, Jane Wyman's character, but that she was, of course, involved in that famous lawsuit that she was in at the time. Um, also, Kate Hepburn and Jean Arthur were considered for the role.
0: Catherine Hepburn would have actually done pretty well in that mm, role, I think. Yeah,
1: she would have done, actually. So the majority of the film, at least the insides, were shot at Paramount in Hollywood. Um, but they, they did go to New York City because Billy Wilder wanted that authenticity of him actually walking the New York City streets. And I was actually just amazed at how built-up New York City was even back in the mid-'40s. I mean, it still was a sprawling metropolis even then.
0: Well, when you go to New York now, you realise how much of it is a 19th to early 20th century city. A lot of those structures, as you see with the rail line, and the street fronts, fronts with the pawn shops, a lot of it's quite similar in uh, many places.
1: Yeah. So we're going to jump out now. Obviously, with any Alfred Hitchcock movie, you could literally sit there for three hours and discuss it. But yes, we're going to briefly discuss Dial in for Murder because this is um, a, a bit about towards Ray rather than the great Hitch himself. So this was, um, it was a very well-known stage play beforehand.
0: Yeah. Wasn't? Well, it... The I really envy the playwright, Frederick, Frederick Knott, and I think I talked about this before. He wrote Dialing for Murder and two other plays, which just became such cult, no, cult implies in each audience, they became such overwhelming hits that he was able to live on the royalties of it for all his life in quite good comfort, even though he got screwed out of the rights for Dialing for Murder. Which is how they managed to make a perfect murder with Michael Douglas many decades later, and he didn't get a cent for it. But uh, yeah, yeah, the uh, stories were um, that successful.
1: Oh, one was Wait Until Dark, and then the other one was Write Me a Murder. Is that the other ones? Yes, Frederick I Knight? think. Yes, I think so. Yeah, uh, yeah. So definitely one a very famous play that Matt worked on, and I did see the production of the. Of, you were the assistant director on that one? or
0: Director's assistant. Uh, technically there is a difference, but they probably don't need to know about our, <laughs> that here. Our audience, they are interested in other matters.
1: Yes, but it was an entertaining production of that and it was a, a, a beautiful-looking stage, uh, beautiful production design and some interesting performances, we would say. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. That is all we will say. That
1: is all we will say. But it was—I okay. I did enjoy the show, and I was very proud of Matt's work in it. So essentially, *Dial M for Murder* is all. Well, how would he, well, Ray's the male lead in this, but his female co-star is one of the icons of classic cinema, and someone whom Ray was very fond of personally, I would say. Oh, yes. Uh, I don't think his wife was, but he was. Um, it wasn't a relationship that was meant to be, but I do believe they did have a good time together. So Robert Cummings was in it as well and John Williams. So essentially, um Tony's an English retired tennis player. He's married to Margot, who's a wealthy socialite. She has an affair with crime fiction writer Mark Halliday, Tony knows about all of this and basically wants to have Margot killed so he can inherit her fortune. That's the basics of it. We won't give too much away if you haven't seen it. You really do need to follow it because there's lots of clues and who did this and who did that and who knew what when and who got blamed for this and all the rest of it and someone left a key here and someone did that. So you really do need to p- sort of pay attention to it, but it is a sort of classic thriller, who done whodunit. Uh, Matt, what are your thoughts on this film?
0: Well, I think that definitely falls into the category of the drawing room uh, mystery, and I think it's one of the best you could have. The dialogue is just so... It it just really pulls you in. The Mm -hmm. same way that the person who ends up being drawn into attempting to commit a murder, the same way... the same way the audience is drawn into this very cunning plan by Ray mm-hmm. and he does it perfectly. He's such a charmer.
1: Mm-hmm. He
0: makes everybody like him. Mm-hmm. And so even though he got to fame as a sporting star, it's that sort of smile and charm that would have uh, gotten the hand of Margot uh, behind say. the scenes.
1: I'll say. Uh, I Look, I I don't know, was, was Ray a bit too old for the role or was grace kelly too young for the role
0: well i don't know about in terms of grace and race respective ages i mean obviously they managed to get an attraction to each other in real life mm-hmm. but i'm thinking more that if he's meant to be a recently retired tennis player now it's a bit different now because and we've talked about this before the I likes of the
1: oh sorry that's my phone sorry <laughs>
0: Siri, this is a two-person show. Thank you very much.
1: I hate Google Assistant, but anyway.
0: Oh, Google Assistant. Oh, great. Now we have t- two phones trying to rival us. <laughs> but, yeah, but yeah and God, I forgot my point.
1: Uh, uh, you what, were saying what about, were we uh, about? Uh, 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 <laughs> Sorry, that's totally my And we do shoot this live, folks. We don't edit. Uh, no, we were talking about, um, you were saying about a tenor, recently retired tennis player.
0: Oh, yeah, like yes you have Roger Federer now who's like what 37 or something and he's still playing but they get he gets paid a lot a lot and yeah, so and- he's able to take longer breaks between sessions at that time uh you were pretty much over the hill by 30 so i think yes. ray may have just been a bit too yeah. old for it but you could get away with it yeah
1: because ray would have been in his late 40s at that time oh yeah wait yeah. wait old yeah. like
0: a tennis player especially as back then it wasn't until like in the 60s or 70s that they really started introducing um proper yes. salaries for sportsmen even at the most elite levels and so by your 30 you'd You'd have to be making some sort of living no matter where well Yeah, it wasn't really until sort were.
1: of the 80s that people were becoming rich from tennis. And back then at 30, you were pretty much done. Now tennis, the game of tennis has changed. So you've got, you know, three big champions in their mid to late 30s. But that's not how tennis was. So I agree with you there. I'll
0: bet television had a big role in that probably because as sports events became more televised, there were opportunities for sponsors to come in.
1: Yeah, um, definitely. So, I mean, his character, you know, it's interesting that they set him up as this sort of – but then then again that would go to the competitiveness and the brutality of the character just being so competitive and I'm just going to get rid of my wife so I can have the money sort of thing. So there's a bit of backstabbing and and stuff. And and Ray was very strong in this film and I thought Grace Kelly was pretty good in it as well.
0: Yeah, way more – well, we I think we talked about her and Noon. Yes, we did, High Noon was one we did a while back in the Gary Cooper episode, and it was a great beginning role. But she really comes into her own here, and she do even better in To Catch a Thief.
1: Yeah, she does, and she's such a stunning woman. And you know, I know it's horrible to say because she got married to the man and had a family with him, and yes, it was very tragic when she died. But I just like, oh, why would you have gone to Monaco when you could? <laughs> You had this great acting career, and her Ray Ronier, um, and of
0: course that would never happen again.
1: Yeah, um, we, and, you
0: know who we're talking about.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but Ray would her Ray Ronye, or Ray, as she called him, Prince Ronye, He didn't want a bar of her going back to acting. So I think even Hitchcock had tried to lure her back from Monaco, but or Monaco, however you say it. And um, even
0: the, even the general population of Monaco apparently were like. Sc- thought it was scandalous for their princess to be suddenly acting in Hollywood.
1: Yeah, I, I for, for the life of me, I've seen a few movies, I've read a few things about Grace Kelly. I don't understand why she got married to Ray because I don't think, I think her and the other Ray would have had a better marriage, you know, despite their age difference. But I just don't think her and Ronnie had much in common. So anytime I see Grace Kelly, I just think, why, why would you have left your great career to go and sit in a palace? I don't get it, but, you know, who knows?
0: It was probably a fantasy yes. th- uh, going into at the time and uh, probably got sweeped off her feet by Renya at the time, even though it didn't work out. And their marriage ended up being quite strange, wasn't it?
1: it? It, it really was. I think she just kind of stayed with him out of duty and obviously she had three children with him and it and i guess in monaco they have to have like that line of secession otherwise monaco could go back into france that's what i understand it to be oh yeah i
0: do remember reading something about that so if
1: the lineage um you know if they don't have like strong you know, heirs to take it over, then Monaco could essentially go back into the rest of France. So I maybe Ray explained that to her and obviously Albert is now, um, you know, now the head of the family and all the rest of it. And- that could
0: almost be made into some sort of operetta plot where you have a corrupt envoy from France who wants to absorb Monaco back into them so they can take into the treasury the Monaco casinos and there's another lover for the princess's hand and something. I mean, it's basically the plot of The Merry Widow.
1: Well, oh, is it? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd love to visit there and, and that's essentially where – oh, it's interesting, Isn't wasn't To Catch a Thief primarily set in Monaco? Was it Monaco? or I thought that the, was in French, the south of France. The French Riviera, so not yeah. too far away from there. But it's amazing that she would end up there and those sort of roads that they were driving around, She her, her life would essentially end on one of those roads and the conspiracy is, you know, who was driving the car type thing. But, you know, I mean, you do see a bit of her in her children and, you know, who's to say, obviously her and Ray had a very close relationship. I think Ray was thinking of leaving his wife, um, at one point and the wife said, well, I'll take you for everything you have. And and that was the end of that. So, um, they went in different directions. There was too much of an age difference between them anyway because I think about 20-plus years, I'd say, because Grace would have been in her sort of mid-20s and he was in his late 40s. So, yeah, yeah. Interesting, but I did look two of his two of his very well known films. I just love him, so I am happy to watch Ray till the cows come home. And just reading through some of his back catalogs of films, I, I really want to see Beau Guest. There's so many other films, and even some of the trashy films he did in the 60s and 70s. i definitely would like to sit through those as well.
0: Look, uh, one of those uh, gifts that keeps on giving.
1: Also, but. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, uh, perhaps in a different way for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, but he's just, you know, he. I would say he would be my favourite male classic film actor. But I just love him because he was. He just wanted to act. He was this guy from little village in Wales. And he was in the army and he was a great shot and all the rest of it. And he just pursued, pursued, pursued and tried to improve his skills. And he was, he just wanted to work. And the fact that he just worked right up until sort of the mid 80s or so before he died, I mean, not the last few years of his life, but he was acting right up until the early 80s. And, you know, some people just gave up on their careers, but he never did. He took on all different roles like Columbo, all sorts of things, TV shows, you name it, all bit parts and films, whatever. Uh, he he did. certainly
0: didn't just throw his talent away for that role. Like he was just as good as Dialing for Murder, I think, in his uh, Columbo appearance. Yeah,
1: no, he was fantastic, and um, you know, he—I know—he had some family problems, sadly. Uh, but he, you know, stayed with his wife and, and, you know, had this career and worked on it. And good for him. I just love people that want to work and get up there and, and do it. And, and um, I'm a big fan of actors that just keep on going and take what roles they can get and enjoy, enjoy the process. So um, anything else you'd like to add?
0: Uh, to this particular to film. To this particular
1: one for we Well, him.
0: I did actually just think when you said uh, that he was a great shot on the army and I think that would be the best pun for a film magazine of Ray Milland, a great shot to be shot at or something or other. <laughs> Look, I'll have to work on that one, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's some sort of pun there just occurred to me.
1: Oh, I've got a few puns, you know, but I won't yeah. share any of them.
0: Well, this is uh, one of my desert island films, definitely. I think I've seen it since I was about 14 or so. I've probably seen it about 10 times.
1: Mm. It's a great – I mean, you can't really go wrong with Alfred Hitchcock. Even some of his weaker films are still extremely strong compared to some other, other yeah. people out there, so, yeah. yeah.
0: Like, I'll try not to talk too much about Hitchcock for this one because, really, it's a – an episode about Ray, mm. but definitely uh, Hitchcock was quite dismissive of this film simply because he felt like all he did was plagiarise the the play because he was literally just doing it to get through a contract obligation. That's
1: right, but, I remember that. But
0: uh, he put a lot of uh, his uh, special spin in, in, into it, even though he didn't uh, appreciate his own talent.
1: Hmm. Um, obviously for me, Psycho will always be my favourite Hitchcock film, but I did like this one. Uh, uh, probably because of the lead actor, mostly. But it's it's a it's a rollicking film. It's a bit of fun. Grace is fantastic, and it's a beautiful looking film, as pretty much all of Alfred Hitchcock's films are. So we did enjoy this one. I'm sure we will revisit Ray sometime in the future. But there's so many other people to talk about, and uh, for our next episode, um, we are going to discuss. We got a request to discuss some Rod Steiger films. Yes, our first one. Yeah, our first one. I said to Matt, oh, my gosh, that means some people are listening to us. This is great.
0: (laughs) Well, it is reassuring. It is
1: reassuring. And, you know, you always have to start off very slow. Sometimes you see people on YouTube channels and stuff and they've got X amount of followers, but they've been at it for 10 years. And if you look at their first videos – They're kind of probably very similar to our first videos, but you just have to do it for the love of it, and that's why we do it. Like, we're going to watch these films anyway. Why not get together and discuss them and record it? So
0: Well, I just regard it as our normal uh, dinners and coffee meetings. We just happen to have a microphone nearby. Yeah,
1: pretty much, you know. Um, So we're going to do Rod Steiger, uh, the great character, another person that was a workhorse as well and worked all through his career. We're going to do two of – his most well-known films, even if they're known for other things rather than so much his role in them, but he is in these films. So On the Waterfront, which is primarily known as Marlon Brando's film, 1954. I could have been a contender. (laughs) (laughs) Had to do it. And Fred Gwynn's in that film. So no mentions for Larry on this one, although I'm sure his mother knew Grace Kelly, but um, we'll leave (laughs) it (laughs) <laughs> we'll leave it at that and Ray and all the rest of them. Um, so we got On the Waterfront, 1954. That does have Rod Steiger in it in a supporting role. And then The Harder They Fall, which is sort of a boxing film. I wasn't actually really aware of this film, but it's got bogey in it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so unintentionally but both these films with Rod Steiger have a bit of a fixing the corruption of boxing theme.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I saw On the Waterfront. When I was a teenager, because Fred Gwynn was in it, so I don't really have that many memories of it. Um, so I'm looking forward to re-watching that again. I might watch that with my mom actually, because she's a big Marlon Brando fan. And then The Harder They Fall, I'm just going to approach that one with an open mind too.
0: Yeah, and that'll be probably one of my first non trench coat Humphrey Bogart films yeah, as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually... I mean, he'll
0: probably he will still be wearing one, but not <laughs> like not a not as a detective.
1: Yes, I'm, I'm just going to approach that one with an open mind. I sort of like a bit of martial arts and boxing, so I'm sure I'll find both of them interesting. So now we always forget to do this, our social media. I think we're going to have to probably record something and slot it in at the start, Matt, because I always forget.
0: Yeah, well, you know what, we'll, uh, we'll work it out. But, yeah, for those that have uh, listened all the way to the end, uh, we appreciate it. Thank you. And you can uh, get even more of us on time by following us on social media on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And so the moment you hear about one of our releases, you'll just be able to tap onto the link and hear more.
1: Well, thank you so much for that. And, we thank you for being with us. We're sort of here in a cold, dreary Melbourne night. It is, well, our ver- Australia's version of cold. Anyway, the southern part of Australia does actually have quite cold weather. But uh, so in the meantime, we look forward to catching up with you all again very soon for one of our fireside chats. But in the meantime, I'm Rachel.
0: I'm Matthew. Yeah, we do need a fireplace.
1: We do. Actually, I've got some candles going okay. and we're watching good movies. Thank you and good night. Good night.